Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. International News Review. All right, let's start out, Steve. Uh, we should uh, mention the um, Aung San Suu Kyi sentencing this week. We've got to keep Myanmar up in the news uh, agenda here. Uh, faces charges for at least 18 offenses, maximum terms up to nearly 190 years. When the heck is Myanmar going to get its act together here? Well, Glenn, I mean, you made the point. We've got to keep Myanmar in the news, but it's not. Why? Obviously, you've got Russia invading Ukraine committing war crimes, now raining down missiles mm. on, on civilians. You've got um, China and its party congress coming up. You've got North Korea testing ballistic missiles it, it, more than they've ever done in, in recent history. And so Myanmar falls off the page. The U.S. Is, does not have the bandwidth right now to be focusing on it. ASEAN completely ineffectual in addressing the 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 you know, the atrocities that are occurring there. And so what does the junta do? Well, let's just add on more jail time to Aung San Suu Kyi. And as that's happening, China is going back in and investing in Myanmar and, and taking advantage of, of this situation, whereas other, you know, other businesses, investors, countries are not going in at all. It's just a total mess that no one's paying attention to, and you understand why, and it's, it's just ASEAN's got to step up. Mm. Such a good point, Steve. I mean, when I read the original story on Aung San Suu Kyi, I think it was on BBC, it wasn't even the lead story. Mm. It was the second or the third story. I mean, a few years ago, this would have been front and centre, a massive story. It has slipped down the news agenda. What can be done at this point? What can Singapore do about it? What are the repercussions here for Singapore? Well, I mean, Singapore can do something about it, and, and so can Malaysia, and so can Indonesia, so can Taiwan. ASEAN, has, this, is part, this is what ASEAN's partially created for, and it just can't ignore this situation. Um, and, in you know, it's come out, of course, we talked about the five-part the, the five plan. I, God knows how long ago that was, a year ago or however long it's been, and nothing gets done, and it continues to be ignored. So it is the responsibility. Now, you can't wait for the U.S. or the EU to come in with sanctions and in that type of leadership. The leadership really has to come from this part of the region. It really hasn't so far. And look, so now Aung San Suu Kyi has 26 years in jail instead of 23 years in jail. Is anybody going to do anything about it? I, I, I'm not optimistic. Yeah. Um, Steve, let's, uh, let's move forward. We've got a lot to talk about this morning, including uh, the Biden administration uh, had their first formal national security strategy uh, announced this week that identifies China as, quote, America's most consequential geopolitical challenge. Why is this announcement important? It seems like it maybe was something that was being talked about anyway. Uh, but what's going on now? So in the national security strategy that China or that the United States has just come out with, what President Biden said is that we have three real challenges in the United States right now. The top three are that we have to outperform China. The second is that we have to restrain Russia. Mm -hmm. And the third is that we have to restore democracy at home. So those are the three challenges that we have. And the U.S. has never been able to take on Russia and China at the same time. In fact, that's what, you know, Nixon really went against making his approach to Chairman Mao. When you look at uh, where we're headed with um, 
with the relationship between the U.S. and China. The U.S. now is placing restrictions on semiconductor technology transfers to China. Uh, lots is happening with there as well. This could lead to some people not being able to keep their jobs in China. What's going on there? Okay, so what the United States was doing under President Trump, it was really a bilateral mission, right, where you were going to put tariffs on Chinese goods to make them more expensive, and that was really how you were going to conduct this trade war, in addition to having some sanctions on individuals and, and, and products coming out of China. The Biden administration is taking a multifaceted approach. Mm. It's, it is going to keep the tariffs on, but it is going to up the type of national security restrictions, not only on Chinese businesses, but on U.S. and foreign businesses hmm. doing business in China. And then it is going to have an industrial policy that the U.S. has not really had for decades, where you are going to be putting U.S. investment into, into manufacturing, such as on semiconductors, in the U.S. So we're in a completely different ballgame now under the Biden administration than we were. The Trump administration started going this way. Obama hmm. began this kind of with TPP. Trump took it onto tariffs and Biden's taking it to a whole new level. And we used to say there's no chance that we're going to have a Cold War 2.0 uh, between the U.S. and China. I don't think people are so certain that that's not the case anymore. On that point, I found your talk fascinating this week for many reasons, but one of the standout uh, takeaways for me was just that, that this is the one issue that both sides of the political divide in the U.S. are united on, China. Republican, Democrats, they all agree China is an issue whether you go as far to call it a new Cold War, that's for you to say. Do you see that rhetoric being amped up in the weeks and months ahead on both sides? Well, you're certainly going to see it amped up between now and the election, of course, because it is an issue that resonates with voters. That the, the U.S. is a population overwhelmingly anti certainly we'll say Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so that rhetoric is going to get amped up. Now, we presume for historical reasons and because of Joe Biden's relatively low approval rating and, and, and the amount of inflation that the Republicans are going to get the House. Uh, at least the Republicans are going to get the House. Maybe they'll get the Senate, but but almost certainly they'll get the House. And right now the Democrats have both. And right now the Democrats are in total control of the White House, House, and Senate. Which means, sorry for our friends who may not know, they can pass legislation, they can get things done without having to consult with the with the Republicans. Yeah, in certain situations, the Democrats can completely control the agenda. Yeah. When you have a mixed control of, of the Congress, then you have to be much more bipartisan. And now what the House can do, even though without passing legislation, the House can hold hearings. Um, and what the House has said they are going to do, and Republicans have said, when we get the House back, we are going to have hearings against companies that are doing business in China. We're going to have hearings when companies send their leaders to go meet with the leader of Hong Kong. We are going to have hearings about this. We are going to name and shame companies that are engaging with China. 
because all we hear in the United States, again, this is Republicans talking and, and maybe some Democrats too, but say, oh, all we hear is about ESG and how you're so focused on environmental social governance and you mm. want to save the world and it's all about low capitalism. Yet at the same time you're telling us this in Washington, you're going to meet with sanctioned individuals in, in China and Hong Kong, um, and it all there, it's all about making money, but in the U.S. it's not. You can't have it both mm -hmm. ways. And that's what you're going to see with a Republican-controlled House that you wouldn't necessarily see with a Democratic-controlled House. So it doesn't matter if, if, if the Republicans get the House and Senate. If they just get the House, you're going to see a lot of change on rhetoric when it comes to U.S. and China. And, and you mentioned one point there, which was the uh, some... some uh Republican lawmakers are now want to make sure that U.S. banking leaders don't meet uh, with John Lee, the new uh, the new head of, of in Hong Kong, the new chief executive, um, because that is going against some sanctions. And yet, at the same time, Biden will likely meet with Xi uh, at some time in the in the coming future, maybe at the G20, for example, or possibly even meet with Putin. So, where is the uh, where is the uh, you know, where, where do they draw the line on who can meet who? Uh, if the business leaders are just trying to go to Hong Kong, for example, in this case, the banking leaders, and, and keep business going. Well, okay, so it's, and what makes Hong Kong very difficult um, when it comes to, for, for businesses, is when the U.S. sanctions an individual, or a U.S. sanctions a country, and the U.S. sanction, you know, who does the U.S. normally sanction, right? They sanction Iran, North Korea, Venezuela. Hmm. There's not a lot of business in those countries. Right. And so, so business leaders don't have to worry about the appearance of doing business or, or uh, you know, negotiating with those, those countries, because there is no business mm -hmm. to get done. Now, what's happened in Hong Kong is that, you know, when John Lee was the head of security for the Hong Kong government. The U.S. government sanctioned him personally, right, because they said that he was involved in implementing the national security law and he was involved in coercing, detaining, or imprisoning individuals who were just speaking up um, for, right. for, uh, against, against the Chinese government. So he is individually sanctioned. He's now the leader of Hong Kong. Hong Kong is the home to hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of U.S. companies and then certainly tens of thousands of, of, of people working for those companies. So now all of a sudden you are dealing with a, a sanctioned individual. It is legal. The, the sanctions apply that you can't give that person money, you can't mm -hmm. give the, that person goods, you can't give that person services. But if he's hosting a conference and you go to that conference, arguably you're not violating U.S. sanctions law. Okay. But are you giving the impression that it is that he is a, a good person, he's okay to do business with? Right. And so that's the dilemma that U.S. companies have to hmm. deal with today that they never had to deal with in doing business in Hong Kong. What, what are your clients telling you about how they're going to handle it? Well, you, everybody, or do this, they know yet? No one knows yet. I mean, look, when I worked for UPS, uh, and, and certainly when I worked for, you know, when I worked for UPS, of course we met with the leader of Hong Kong. It wasn't even a question back then. When, when I worked with UPS, we met with the leaders of China. That wasn't a question back then. Um, I mean, our goal was to try and, and get those meetings, try and advance business, try and, you know, bring engagement between the countries and development. And then, of course, it was to make money. I mean, that's what businesses do. You didn't have to think about those things. Now, if you are, uh, you know, a CEO of a U.S. company, 
what's going to happen if you meet the leader of leaders of China or Hong Kong? You're doing business there. It's legal to do business there. Mm. You want to do business there. It's a very important market. You want to serve the Chinese people. But we are in uncharted territory when it comes to doing public affairs in Asia. And what the Biden administration is, is saying in its national security review that China is our number one competitor for the next decade. And when you have the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, say that we need to contain China because we, the United States, need to keep our superiority when it comes to supercomputers and AI for as long as possible and, and as, as deep mm. or as, as far a lead as possible. It's, it's, Glenn, you can't answer that question yet because it's all new right now. Yeah. But that's the, that's the fascinating wow. point, Steve, because it's uncharted territory. I mean, putting on your McClarty Associates hat for a second, an American, a Singapore-based American company comes to you and says, we've got this deal lined up with Hong Kong. What do we do? And second point, what are the possible ramifications? That's where it seems very gray to me. And that's what you have to think through now. How do you how how and this is look and this is the same thing that governments are, are thinking through now, right? Where you have the Singapore government and the leaders of the Philippines and Malaysia, everywhere in Indonesia, they say to the U.S. government, "Don't make us choose between the U.S. and China. We want to be able to engage with both the U.S. and China. We want to have business between." The U.S. and China. We want to have investment and trade flowing between us and the U.S. and us and China. Well, global businesses say the same thing, right? We want to be able to do business in China. We want to be able to do business in the U.S. Um, we want to be able to engage in both. But that is getting more and more difficult. Um, and so this is a, a real balancing act that the U.S. government needs to think about. What is it going to do vis-a-vis its relationships, in particular with ASEAN? And then U.S. companies need to do the same. The U.S. government used to take the view, and, and, and Glenn, this is the difference, right? What U.S. businesses do and what the U.S. government does from a national security perspective are basically two different things. Right. Of course, you know, you, you have Joe Biden fist bump, you know, MBS in Saudi Arabia. You wouldn't expect to see to see a CEO necessarily fist bump MBS in Saudi Arabia. There's a there, that's the government and business, two different things. But national security and economics and business are becoming one and the same. Yeah. And that's a whole different era that we're about to enter. And yeah. just to flip it around, let's look at it from the Asian perspective for a second, from the China perspective. What's the What's the chances of some of these companies just pushing back and saying, why should we listen to America on this? We do business with China. We do business in Hong Kong. We're very happy with the relationships we currently have with both countries. Why should we take heed this warning? But well, it's not a warning. It, it, you can't break U.S. law. Right. And so that is why people are very concerned that we're having this decoupling, that we are going to have a Cold War 2.0. And so now, look, for the first time ever, U.S. export controls on China have been expanded. Used to be you can't sell this technology, which might have dual use, where it's a, it has a business use but a military use. And so you used to ban under U.S. law certain technologies. Hmm. U.S. export controls have now been expanded to U.S. persons meaning no U.S. citizen or U.S. permanent resident can support the development or production of certain high-quality and chips, as an example. 
Okay, so what does this mean? Well, you have U.S. citizens, you know, who who are now working for Chinese companies in China. It is now illegal under the 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 the, the sanctions law for that U.S. person to be working for a Chinese company. And yeah. so there's a, a the founder and CEO of Advanced Microfabrication Equipment in China, AEMC. He is a U.S. citizen, is the founder of that company. He can't work for that company, presumably, anymore. And so that company stock went down twenty percent. When the sanctions come out, you don't have a trade. This isn't you. You you can't balance both. Neil, you you either comply with U.S. law or you don't. And if you don't, you you have serious issues. And this is so companies have to, and and, and citizens have to follow U.S. The law. citizens part I understand, but the companies part. What if you're a Singaporean citizen working for an American company in Singapore? Doing business with Hong Kong, how does how does that play out? Well, yeah, there, 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 there's a legal issue, and then there is a political issue. So presumably, there's no not going to be any sanctions applying yet, right, to to Hong Kong for that type of business taking place. But then, then there's the reputational issues that come in, and that's where you have to start to balance on those reputational issues, and it's why you have. You know, Chinese citizens who say, I'm no longer going to be working for a U.S. company or Chinese, you know, media stars saying I'm not going to be a sponsor of a U.S. product anymore. And and so it goes in both directions. It, it's going from China to the U.S. It's going from the U.S. to China. And that's why there's a real concern that the decoupling, which, hey, look, the decoupling has been there for a while. You can't get Facebook in China. You don't use WhatsApp in China. Those things are, you, you don't use Twitter in China. Those things are blocked and banned. We've been decoupled in, in social media for a while. But that decoupling is now expanding well beyond what used to be relatively limited to social media and military. Steve, lots of interesting stuff going on, including what the implications might be for Singapore, Singaporean companies, based on what the U.S. does or doesn't do yeah. or the restrictions it puts on. Uh, we will discuss that in a future, uh, in a future installment. Meantime, thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate it.